0: Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Vince Houghton, author of the new book, The Nuclear Spies, America's Atomic Intelligence Operation Against Hitler and Stalin. Vince Houghton is historian and curator at the International Spy Museum, He taught courses in Cold War history and intelligence history at the University of Maryland and is the host and creative director of Spycast, the Spy Museum's popular podcast. His work has been published widely in such media as The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, The Economist, Vanity Fair, and many others. We spoke to Vince about why the U.S. government was unable to create an effective intelligence system to monitor the Soviet Union's nuclear capabilities. What were some of the incorrect assumptions Americans made about Soviet science? And what were the strategic repercussions of these errors for the US as the Cold War deepened? Hello, Vince, welcome to the podcast.
1: It's great to be here,
0: thanks. Well, we're excited to be talking with you. Your new book, The Nuclear Spies, America's Atomic Intelligence Operation Against Hitler and Stalin, will be officially out September 15th. 70 years ago, we're on the 70th, 70th anniversary August 29, 1949, just a few days ago, 70 years ago, the Soviet Union detonated its first atomic bomb, and it completely shocked the U.S. intelligence establishment. Considering how successfully the U.S. conducted their atomic intelligence effort against the Germans in the Second World War, why was the U.S. government unable to create an effective atomic intelligence system to monitor the Soviets? How did the U.S. get it so wrong? Yeah, no, that's the that's the heart of
1: everything. And I guess we couldn't have planned this any better. I think about the fact that it's the the perfect anniversary. We should have had it come out on August 29th. <laughs> um, but uh, the, kind of the, juxt- the, the the essence of the book is, you know, we screwed this up so royally, which it's not, you know, to judge ourselves on that is somewhat unfair because we've been consistently bad about predicting when people are going to become nuclear power since 1949. But then again, we were really, really good at finding out what the Germans were up to just a couple years earlier. And so that, that to me became kind of the fundamental question, why did we get it so right and then so wrong within just a short time period? Uh, and the short answer to all of this is that we thought the Germans walked on water. We thought German science was the best in the world. We thought German industry was second to none. And conversely to that, we thought the Soviets were morons, and we thought the Soviet industry was was a hundred years behind everybody else and Once we saw the Germans were unable to build an atomic bomb during the war with their extraordinary scientists and their great industry, we didn 't think the Soviets stood a chance. I mean we knew they 'd build a bomb eventually. I mean most people did um, some actually you know Harry Truman, very not knowing any better said oh they 'll never get one but People that knew better, Leslie Groves and others, for like 25 years, Uh, even the scientists who had contacts on the other side understood how difficult it was for us to build it and how the Germans weren't able to and said, look, we got time to figure this out. And so from an intelligence perspective, you don't focus on stuff you're not immediately worried about. And you don't beef up your scientific intelligence apparatus unless there is a reason to do so particularly when you're trying to kind of get the CIA off the ground as you were in 1947. And so a lack of any real need to go fast combined with our feelings about the Soviets meant that we, we dropped the ball. And that's kind of the short answer to that question.
0: Okay. Okay. So now I know that you're the historian and curator at the International Spy Museum and you have access to a lot of fascinating history and Uh, interests uh, across the board uh, uh, when it comes to espionage. What drew you to this topic in particular?
1: So what was interesting about this is is kind of my origin story when it comes to nuclear weapons goes way back. Um, I was seven years old uh, when my parents let me stay up way past my bedtime to watch a TV movie called The Day After.
0: Oh, I remember that.
1: Uh, And Yeah, so 1983, it it really messed me up. Um, (laughs) My parents probably didn't realize that, but it it made me fascinated with, you know, kind of the impact that nuclear weapons had on the way we did everything. Uh, And so in 1986, when I was 10, a new book came out that I begged my parents for. They're like, you're not going to understand this. I gave it to me anyway. There's a guy named Richard Rhodes, wrote a book called *The Making the Atomic Bomb, uh, which I read at 10, I read again at 12, and I read again at 14, and eventually I understood it but it took wow. a little while and that got me really fascinated with kind of the atomic side. I knew I wanted to study that. Then I was in the army in the 1990s and I was, as my bio says, um, I worked with both civilian and military intelligence agencies in several capacities. So that brought the intel side into things. And I tried to find a way to combine the two. I didn't think I'd be able to pull it off. When I actually went to work on my PhD. I thought everything had been done when it came to nuclear intelligence. And because there are dozens of books that talk about the American intelligence effort against the Germans in World War II. And there are hundreds of books that talk about how we try to spy on the Russians and their atomic bomb program in the Cold War. And I'm like, God, there's nothing left to write. And then I realized, and this was kind of the epiphany, that none of them overlapped. Not a single one of those books talked about both. Now, there's spying on the bomb by Jeffrey Richelson from, you know, who just passed away from the George Washington University's uh, National Security um, 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 Archive, uh, who wrote a book that has a chapter on the Germans and a chapter on the Soviets and then a chapter on Pakistan and Israel and all those. But there's no connection between the two. And it's it's though history or historians had written an artificial line of demarcation between the end of World War II and the Cold War. Like there's a magical changing and everyone's life changed magically between the way the One World War ended and the Cold War began. And not understanding that it was just a Tuesday to a Wednesday. It was just a different day. It was just no one's life like dramatically changed. The intelligence agencies were still doing intelligence work. People were still doing science. And I realized, I thought at least that I would tackle these questions together and see if there's any relation between the two. And that was kind of the magic that was where... I said, oh, my God, I've got a dissertation topic uh, that is relatively, you know, broad-based. It's not some obscure, you know, antebellum Kansas, you know, you know women's history. It's, it's a big question about American intelligence and nuclear weapons and World War II and the Cold War. And I was just flabbergasted that no one had done it before. Uh, I was very happy. Uh, and I think that I've at least kicked off the question. I know I think I answered it but I may be wrong I mean that's historians better be prepared to say that uh but I, we think I at least started a very important question about how we need to be dealing with these two things as one intelligence problem versus two different entities
0: wow that's fascinating it's amazing that as you were saying that no one had put those two pieces of the puzzle together we're so happy that you have um and, and you, one of the things that you said, you say in the book, and you also mentioned in the introduction here of the podcast, that, um, you know, that the U.S. just had completely incorrect assumptions about Soviet science, that it was backwards and that the Germans walked on water. Could you elaborate more on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, if you look at the German side, right, the, the head of the German atomic bomb program, Werner Heisenberg, was basically either the PhD advisor or a close friend and peer of like everyone who worked on the Manhattan Project. So we we now revere these scientists who worked on the Manhattan Project, but no one really knew a lot of their names beforehand. They were relatively young PhDs, professors, places. I mean, people knew Oppenheimer, people knew Fermi. But for the most part, a lot of these guys who now elements are named after literally on the periodic table were not household names. Heisenberg was. Heisenberg in many cases had been their professor. He had been their mentor. And so you looked at him, you looked at people like Hans Geiger, you know, and they named the Geiger counter after him. You look at people like Otto Hahn, who had discovered nuclear fission. You look at some of the people who had reinvented physics and quantum mechanics in the 20th century, working at places like the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, where at one point in the 1930s, there's three different Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes that matter to me. One for physics, one for chemistry, one for physical chemistry. Albert Einstein was the head of the physics Institute, right? So that's pretty good. Otto Hahn was the head of the physical chemistry Institute. And a guy named Fritz Haber was the head of the chemical Institute. Fritz Haber was the most important scientist during World War I, figured out how to pull nitrogen out of the air, which not only kept the Germans in the war for another year, but we re- kind of changed completely how we do things like uh, create fertilizer to keep everybody alive. So it was where you went if you actually wanted to learn physics. So, we looked at this and said, good God, we're, they're going to beat us to the ball. Like, so there's no way they don't. And then they didn't, not even close, right? They, they basically stopped at a point in which we hit in the mid-1943 era, 1940, late 1943, and they just didn't go any further than that. They thought it was too hard. They thought they didn't have enough resources to do it. And so we finished that off and said, God, the the best scientists in the world couldn't do this. Then we looked at the Soviets and said, Jesus, they've got a couple good guys. Peter Kapitsas knows what he's doing. Igor Kurchatov knows what he's doing. But for the most part, yeah, they're not really great at science. They never really like set the world on fire. And industry-wise, they're way behind everybody else. Like at that point, there's a joke by, you know, one of the titans of industry in the united states that like the number one product that soviet industry had created was a two-seated tractor, you know that allowed for two people to ride around and plow the fields versus just one wow. and right i mean that that was a joke i guess yeah it was more it was more the idea that no one had a perception of the soviets as being anything but bumpkins and you can see this reinforced the crazy part about this is when the soviets build the bomb right when they demonstrate that they've caught up to us in atomic weapons. No one concluded that they were good at science. No one said, oh, well, of course they did, right? They've got good scientists. No, they went and said they stole the bomb,
0: right? It was this big
1: espionage plot. You know, and espionage played a little bit of a role in this, but I argue vehemently, and I'll argue, I mean, that's part of the spy museum, that espionage played a minor role in the Soviets getting the bomb. The major role was, it was physics, and physics is physics, right? It's not like physics change if you're Russian or American. Physics is physics. And they had good physicists, and they figured out how to do it, right? I mean, there's, it's not a secret. The only secret in Glenn Seaborg, who was the guy who in, in, discovered plutonium and would later be the head of the Atomic Energy Commission, said the only secret of the atomic bomb was whether or not it would work. And Hiroshima and Nagasaki basically showed the world that that was no longer a secret. So the Soviets... Had good scientists, they built the bomb. But even after 1949, we still said, oh, well, they stole it. It was the Rosenbergs, it was Klaus Buchs. it was this, you know, the dastardly Soviet intelligence. And that's what led us to being surprised again in 1957. Oh my God, the Soviets put Sputnik into space. How are they so far ahead of us? Well, idiots, they've got really good scientists. <laughs> I mean, and they always have. Uh, And then Gagarin in 61, how did they beat us into space with a man? Well, they've got really good scientists, (laughs) right? Why did you get this in 1945, at least in 1949? Then you wouldn't be so surprised about
0: this. That's amazing that they keep on making that error. So, you know, what were the strategic repercussions of this type of thinking for the U.S. uh, political and military leaders as the Cold War went on?
1: Well, I mean, it just became kind of this broken record of, of the kind of the Soviets were, were were bumpkins and could never keep up with us. And really the only time that actually came into play was in the 1980s, um, which ironically uh, was really the downfall of the Soviets in the end, right? The Soviets could not keep up in computer technology. When we started doing research on SDI, which was never, ever going to work, but what it did was show how far behind the Soviets were in computer technology, um, and then everything we had thought before was true, right? We had all the best computer scientists. We had the infrastructure to build computers. We had Dell and HP and Apple and you know and Microsoft and IBM, and they didn't have that. But up until that point, we constantly had this idea of backward Soviets that would never be able to develop anything even remotely close to us. We were all about quality; they're all about quantity you know and ever so often a new aircraft would come out or a new submarine would come out or something that would shock us and they're going jesus this is better than what we have or at least this is equal to what we have and we had to kind of reassess our, our philosophy toward the soviet union even though they showed us again and again and again that they could compete um, they could compete scientifically and we just kept ignoring that or at least you know we just couldn't convince ourselves of that for whatever reason
0: Interesting, interesting. Well, you've made a fascinating case. Um, we're really excited to be sending this out to reviewers and seeing uh, the impact and uh, response you get from historians. Are you doing anything at the International Spy Museum uh, f- for the book? Yeah, so we're, we're having a program here. Um,
1: depending on when this goes out, we're having a program here on September 18th. Oh,
0: great, yeah, we'll, um, definitely, where... we'll definitely have it out by then.
1: Awesome, yeah, so September 18th, we're having a program here at the museum where um, a colleague of mine, who is also a PhD historian, uh, intelligence historian, uh, is going to interview me and ask me all the questions that she's been waiting for this for a long time. She wants to kind of trip me up. So she's gonna come after me uh, and ask me some some in-depth questions about the book. And then I'm actually, I've become a bit of a um, amateur collector of artifacts kind of surrounding this time period. Uh, and so I'm going to bring in some of the stuff that I've been able to collect over time, uh, which includes a, a piece of the first ever nuclear reactor, the Chicago pile uh, that Enrico Fermi had, the University of Chicago, the first ever one. I have a piece of graphite from it. Wow. Um, so there's, yeah, so that, there's going to be some neat, at least to me, it's neat um, stuff I'm going to bring along with me. But yeah, September 18th, at the Spy Museum. You can check out spymuseum.org and, and our, our events to, to find out more information about it.
0: That's great. That's great. Well, we're we're very proud to be publishing your book, The Nuclear Spies, America's Atomic Intelligence Operation Against Hitler and Stalin. And it was a pleasure talking with you.
1: It's great to be here, man. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Vince. Take care. Awesome. You too. That was Vince Houghton, author of the new book, The Nuclear Spies, America's Atomic Intelligence Operation Against Hitler and Stalin. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on his new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.